Hello and welcome to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross. Join us on our journey as we bounce from place to place, digging into different historical, scientific, or cultural topics along the way. Why bury your head in some crummy guidebook when there's a whole world out there to see? Listen to Nerd Roamer, learn more about the world you explore, so that you too can roam wisely. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date with the newest Nerd Roamer news. Check out our website, nerdroamer.com, for deep dives and write-ups on each of our episodes. That, what you were just listening to, is our theme song composed by Johnny Hogg. We want to thank him so much for those soulful tunes. I want to thank you for tuning into this episode. Today we're going to be trying something a little bit different, a little bit of a mad science experiment, if you will. We're going to be doing this recurring series from time to time called A Nerd Roamer's Guide To, where we're going to give you a nice overview of some different spots around the United States. We'll do some national parks, we'll do some cities, we'll do some historical sites, Basically trying to put together a guide giving you all the background information you need to fully appreciate what you're looking at when you travel to these different sites around the United States. So for our first episode of A Nerd Roamer's Guide to, in honor of leaf peeping season, we are going to cover one of America's premier leaf peeping destinations, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Depending on your familiarity with the national park system or with Tennessee and North Carolina, a few different things might come to mind. If you're familiar with the national park system, you might hear Great Smoky Mountains National Park and you might realize, hey, isn't that the most visited national park? And you would be absolutely correct. On average, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is far and away the most visited national park, averaging somewhere around 9 to 10 million visitors per year. Contributing to this fact, something you may or may not know, the Great Smoky Mountains is one of the few national parks that's completely free to visit. There's no entrance fee to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The story behind that is fascinating and as a little teaser to get you to keep listening to this episode, I'll tell you, we'll talk about why later on. If you're a biology nut, you might recognize the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's been recognized as an international biosphere reserve. So this area of the Great Smoky Mountains, just smack dab in the United States, has biodiversity that can rival some of the most lush, unique places on Earth. So that's another aspect of the Great Smoky Mountains that we're going to get to dive into today. And if you're completely unfamiliar with all of that, hearing talk of the Great Smoky Mountains will at least maybe make you conjure up these images of Appalachia. You'll think of homesteaders. You might remember the song Rocky Top, which is the fight song for University of Tennessee. And that is definitely kind of a part of the history of the park as well that's really interesting. So we'll talk about that also. So buckle up. We're going to hop in our Nerd Roamer convertible. We're going to put the top down and we're taking a drive on Newfoundland Gap Road over the pass and into North Carolina from Tennessee. And you are going to get a nice overview of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And after we've had our fill of the Great Smoky Mountains, you know what? Go crazy. Head back to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Hit up Dollywood. When you're done with the Tilt-A-Whirl, you can gorge yourself on some all-you-can-eat waffles at one of the many pancake houses that are in town. Till you're so full you can't walk anymore, hop on a jazzy scooter, jazzy back to your hotel, and pass out for the night. This is going to be a big day, so get yourself ready. So, let's get something out of the way here. Great Smoky Mountains. The Great Smoky Mountains are a subset, so they're a sub-range within the Appalachian Mountains. And you can actually think of them as also being a sub-area within the Blue Ridge Mountains. So the Blue Ridge Mountains are that long strip of mountains that reach basically kind of starting down in Georgia 
and up towards the mid-Atlantic part of the Appalachian Mountains. The Great Smoky Mountains are the core of the Blue Ridge Mountains that are right on the Tennessee-North Carolina border that is the highest part of the Appalachian Range, giving rise to tons of peaks over 6,000 feet, definitely the tallest group of mountains in eastern North America by far. This area is bordered by the flat Piedmont to the east and the Appalachian Plateau to the west. Scientists think that the Great Smoky Mountains are the result of a collision between two tectonic plates, the African Plate and the North American Plate, sometime around 325 million years ago. So we're talking somewhere around maybe like the Permian period, which if you'll remember, if you'll listen back to our dinosaur episode, you'll remember that that came just before the time of the dinosaurs. Pre-dinosaur time, you've got the African Plate, North American Plate colliding, in this event that scientists have given a name to the Alleghenian orogeny. So orogeny just coming from the Greek words oros, meaning mountain, geni, meaning genesis or birth. So it's like essentially birth of the mountain. So Alleghenian orogeny, around 325 million years ago, you have this collision of the plates and then uplifting of mountains. And this was quite the mountain building event. They think that probably at their peak height, the Appalachian Mountains were at least as tall as the Alps in Europe or the Rocky Mountains in Western North America. The catch is that this happened such a long time ago and that the Earth's surface at that time was covered with a lot of limestone marine deposits that were really soft. So you had these huge mountains being built 325 million years ago but it, they were covered in this really soft limestone. And so over time, that's just eroded down through freeze-thaw cycles, just general weathering, to leave behind what we see now as the Great Smoky Mountains. And if you look at the stone of the Great Smoky Mountains, a lot of it is actually kind of very, very old Precambrian rock that's from quite deep in the crust of the earth that has been left behind by all those erosion events that we were talking about. The Great Smoky Mountains is really interesting in that it's right on the border of the northern portion of North America that was really affected by expanding glaciers during the Ice Age and the southern part of the United States that wasn't affected by it at all. The Great Smokies themselves were never really glaciated in recent history, but they bordered lands that were. And so it did get quite cold in the Smokies and there was a lot of freeze-thaw. And so you'll sometimes see these big boulder fields kind of around the Great Smokies that they think are the result of these big freeze-thaw cycles kind of busting off rocks and sending them crashing down. Today, most of the highest peaks in the park are made of this harder metamorphic rock that's been left over after erosion, but there are definitely still some pockets of limestone that still remain. Probably the most significant to most visitors would be the large, shallow limestone basin that is Cades Cove. As the climate settled out into its present-day status, hardwood deciduous forests moved in that are similar to the forests we have in the eastern United States today. Because of the elevation changes present in the Great Smoky Mountains, moving from lower elevations in the park to the highest peaks is almost like traveling northward through the country. So there are different types of forests depending on where you are in the park, and the biodiversity is really, really cool. Most of the park in the valleys and in some of the lower laying areas like Hades Cove are covered in what's known as the Cove Hardwood Forest. So this is a southern hardwood forest. It's very, very typical of what you'd find in a lot of the areas of the American South. And what's really special about it here is that a lot of it is old growth or at least secondary kind of old growth forest. This is some of the most extremely lush, diverse forests you'll find anywhere in eastern North America. You've got basswood, dogwood, magnolia, a lot of the classic southern trees to be found here. And it's really, really amazing. Lots of great flowers if you come in the spring, if you come in April or so. 
lots of great flowers to be found. Moving up in elevation, you'll come to the northern hardwood forest. So once you hit about 3,500 to 4,000 feet, depending on the aspect, so which direction the slope is facing, right? Slopes that are facing south, this transition is going to happen higher up on the slope. Slopes that are facing north, it's going to happen lower on the slope. You've got your northern hardwood forests. These forests, walking through them is going to make you feel like you're in New England. You know, you're going to feel like you're up in the in the Catskills or the Adirondacks or the Berkshires or the White Mountains. You've got birch trees, beech trees, maple trees. This is the zone that just lights up in the fall. Beautiful, beautiful colors. So if you're coming in the fall, you want to see fall colors. You want to make sure you get up in elevation a little bit to get into this belt of trees because this is where you're going to get all those brilliant, you'll get beautiful yellows, bright oranges, all that kind of stuff. Moving into our last main type of forest that we'll get into is the spruce fir forest. So this used to be a, more of a combination forest with spruce trees and Fraser fir trees. This is found at the very highest elevation. So we're talking top of those, you know, we said some of those mountains can top out over 6,000 feet. You know, this is a forest you'll be finding at 5,500 or 6,000 feet and above. Walking through this forest is going to make you feel like you're in Maine or something like that. I remember going to the Great Smokies the first time I was ever there was in the spring, and we did a hike to the top of Mount LeConte, and I was just so blown away by the fact that I was in, you know, Tennessee, and it was spring, and I was slipping on ice at the top of Mount LeConte. I was like, what is going on? It's because... Of the elevation, you've got spruce forest. You've got to just think, if you're up there, it's like you're in Maine or southern Canada. Because of an insect that was brought to North America accidentally from Europe in the early 20th century, most of the Fraser firs have been completely decimated. So now it's mostly a spruce forest, mostly red spruce, but still pretty neat. If you want to feel immersed in this coniferous forest, you've really got to get to the highest elevations. The easiest way to do that if you're not going to be doing a big hike like Mount Lacan or something like that, it's going to be driving up to Klingman's Dome. From the perspective of thinking about flora and biodiversity, the last unique aspect of Great Smoky Mountains we're going to touch on are the balds. So when I say balds, I mean you're looking at these hills. It's kind of this unique feature of the Smoky Mountains, but you'll look at hills that will be covered in trees, but the top of the hill will have no trees whatsoever. They're basically like these big meadows, and some of them can be covered in shrubs. These are called a heath bald, so you'll see shrubs like rhododendrons, laurel, blueberry, huckleberry, etc. will cover these heath balds on the top of some of the mountains, and then other mountains will be covered in grassy balds, so it'll essentially just be like a big grass meadow at the top. The most interesting aspect of the balds at Great Smoky Mountains National Park is that no one knows why they're there. It's unclear if they're a natural or man-made phenomenon. And if they are a man-made phenomenon, nobody is certain of who did it. There have been numerous theories proposed by naturalists that have suggested anything from parasitic wasps to small fires or high winds have kept the balds on the top of the mountains clear. But what we've realized from years of managing the balds in the national park system is that when left to their own devices, it seems like the balds kind of heal over and trees will grow in to fill that space. So it seems like they maybe are some sort of man-made phenomenon. But then it's very interesting because when you look into the legends of the Cherokee, the other native peoples of the area, they discuss the balds in some of their legends, but they don't mention at any point creating them. And there's no records or oral histories of them somehow maintaining the balds, either through burning or grazing or cutting or anything like that. There's no evidence that they necessarily used the balds to hunt animals, that mostly 
the indigenous peoples of the area lived in the valleys and getting up to the mountaintops to hunt animals would have been really, really burdensome and unnecessary. That kind of throws out the idea that these were created by indigenous people. And then some historians think that they were probably created by some of the early settlers. And the reasons for this or the methods for this have just kind of been lost in the mists of time. With the leading theories stating that, that perhaps there were some small openings in the forest just because the tops of the mountain have a really harsh climate and that early settlers, uh, European settlers, came in and enlarge those openings to make space for their cattle to graze. So it's it's really interesting. They're a very prominent geographic feature in Great Smoky Mountains that no one exactly knows why they're there exactly. They're great for hikers because you can make your way up to the top of the mountains and you can have a somewhat unobstructed view from the top of any mountain. A lot of the hikes will say that they're going to the top of X, Y, and Z bald. So you'll see that when you're looking up hikes in the park. It's just good to make sure a lot of the hikes that go to the more grassy balds, you're going to have an easier time getting a good view than the ones going to a heath bald. Because the heath balds, you know, you'll be competing with shrubs and bushes, so that's something to look into. At this point, the National Park Service kind of actively manages these areas to preserve them. So get out there and enjoy them uh, while you still can. <laughs> All right, let's talk history. Moving from the ultra nerdy to the medium, people have been coming to the Great Smoky Mountains for a long time. There are artifacts from older indigenous peoples that lived in the North American continent dating back to like eight, ten thousand years ago that have been found in the Great Smoky Mountains. So at least on some transient level, people have been passing through the Great Smoky Mountains and living there for a long, long time. People have been farming, at least on some level, in the Great Smoky Mountains since the start of the woodland period, so probably around a thousand years before the birth of Christ. So about a thousand BC, that's when you first start to see evidence of some human settlements that are at least semi-permanent in nature in the park. There's kind of an interesting detour over time that really should be its own separate episode sometime, but during the period just before European contact is this large swath of North American history that some anthropologists would call the Mississippian period. And the Mississippian period is really interesting because you have this large, great civilization develop right in the middle of North America that in school I think a lot of people just don't really learn about. But you have large cities developing during this time. These are, you'll hear people talk about the mound builders, so this is kind of like the mound builder period. But you can essentially think of this as a little bit of urbanization with really successful agriculture. This culture was really, really predominant in the river valleys of central, especially central kind of southern, central southern North America. And that drew a lot of people out of these more difficult to inhabit kind of mountain territories and into some of these more lush fertile plains where they could kind of settle down and do more agriculture. It's not 100% clear, but it seems at some point during all of this, the proto-Cherokee or the people that would go on to become the Cherokee broke off from the Iroquois nation in northern North America and moved down and participated in this kind of Mississippian city building, mound building, agricultural floodplain revolution. And at some point after the Mississippian period ended, they settled into their traditional Cherokee territory which stretched from northern Alabama and Georgia up into Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, kind of along that Blue Ridge line and kind of some of the foothills and low-lying areas just on either side of that. They retained the Mississippian tradition of agriculture 
and in addition to hunting and trading, relied heavily on growing crops in fertile river bottoms. They lived in villages comprised of buildings constructed of wooden frames that they would cover in vegetation and saplings that they would then plaster with mud. While the Great Smoky Mountains was an important hunting ground for them, and there were Cherokee hunting camps that would be set up in places like Cades Cove, the only permanent Cherokee settlement within the Great Smoky Mountain National Park boundaries is found at Okanalufti, where there's currently a museum and visitor center within the park. Initially, their remote location provided the Cherokee people living in the area of the Great Smoky Mountains with some protection from European settlers, but as more and more European settlers pushed into the frontier, conflicts began to arise. These especially came to a head around the time of the American Revolution, when the Cherokee cast their die with the British people and joined them in fighting against the American revolutionaries participating in raids on southern rebel outposts. After losing badly to the Americans in what some people refer to as the Cherokee-American Wars, the Cherokee signed a treaty ceding over much of their land to the United States and also consolidated their organizational structure to a more central governing body under the Cherokee Nation. In addition to creating a set of laws and a governing structure for the entire Cherokee Nation, around this time the Cherokee were also united by language. In one of the most unique linguistic feats in modern history, the Cherokee Sequoia devised a syllabary for transcribing the Cherokee language around the year 1809. This is one of few recorded instances in history where a people without reading and writing were able to quickly and efficiently de novo construct a language for communicating on paper. This tenuous steady state wouldn't last for long, however. While an entire other episode or series of episodes would need to be dedicated to the Trail of Tears in depth in order to cover that subject and do it justice. As the 19th century wore on, the presence of the Cherokee in eastern North America interfered with many United States plans for mining gold and developing American settlements, and the Cherokee people were forcefully and brutally resettled to territory in Oklahoma. Only one band of Cherokees was allowed to remain on their ancestral lands, the Oconalofty Cherokees near Great Smoky Mountains National Park. This was due in no small part to the efforts of their attorney, William H. Thomas, who was able to wheel and deal them land from five different counties. However, there was one tragic catch for the Eastern Cherokee. They would need to help the United States government and General Winfield Scott hunt down a fugitive Cherokee for execution in order to remain on their lands. The story goes something like this. Sali, a Cherokee prophet and leader, was outraged by the treatment that the Cherokee people were receiving from the United States government. When the United States government had rounded up Sali and his family, they began marching them down a trail at Bayonet point to join the other Cherokee on the Trail of Tears. When a U.S. soldier prodded his wife with a bayonet after stumbling, he became enraged and instructed his wife and the other prisoners present to take the soldier's guns and run into the hills. What followed was a chaotic struggle that saw guns going off, with an end result being that one of the soldiers was shot and killed. Sali and his band of Cherokee fled into the hills and found a cave underneath Klingman's Dome to hide in. For the rest of the summer, General Winfield Scott scoured the Great Smoky Mountains high and low looking for Sali and his band of Cherokee. Fugitives. Finally, he reached his wit's end, calling for Will Thomas, the lawyer for the Indians, in order to see if he could strike a deal. Realizing that he could leverage Sali's sense of duty and honor to his people in order to obtain the justice demanded by Washington, he informed Thomas that if Sali would give himself over peacefully, he would grant citizenship and residence in North Carolina to all of the Cherokee fugitives underneath his command. If Sali refused, he told Thomas, he would send his soldiers to hunt down every Cherokee they came upon and kill them on sight. When Thomas located Sali and his fugitives near Klingman's Dome, he presented him with the offer, and Sali agreed. 
He and the other fugitives would turn themselves in so that the rest of their people could remain on their lands and be free. Upon reaching the army encampment, Sali and two of his highest ranking Cherokee were immediately sentenced to death. They were taken out to a stand of trees and a firing squad was assembled. The commanding officer asked Sali if he had any final words. Sali told him, If I must be killed, I would like to be shot by my own people. He and the other two Cherokee refused their blindfolds. They stood quietly against the trees as their fellow Cherokee delivered the fatal shots. The spot where Sally was executed now lays under Lake Fontana, a reservoir of the Little Tennessee River behind Fontana Dam. Today, Sally is commemorated by Sally Boulevard in downtown Cherokee, North Carolina. Today, there are over 10,000 members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. They reside on an area of land known as the Koala, which is different from most reservations within the United States in that it was actually purchased by the Cherokee Band itself. While the Cherokee Nation, based in Oklahoma, boasts over 300,000 members and is the largest Native American nation within the United States today, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is the only band of Cherokee Indian permanently located on ancestral Cherokee lands. Just as the early 1800s saw the Cherokee forced off their lands and moved out of the Great Smoky Mountain, it also saw white Americans move in. One of the areas within the park where old structures are most prominent is Cades Cove. A land speculator named William Fighting Billy Tipton sold off lots of land to settlers between the years 1818 and 1821. The first settlers to buy a lot and build a permanent structure in Cades Cove were John and Lucretia Oliver in 1818. Remember the name John Oliver because it'll come up later in this podcast. Over time, the population of Cades Cove swelled to over 200 or 250 people. It was enough to support multiple churches, grist mills, and tradesmen like blacksmiths. Most of the people who lived within the park in the mountains and in the small valleys like Cades Cove lived a very hard life. They relied upon subsistence agriculture on very small farms that were worked without the benefits of modern machinery. Eventually, Cades Cove had grown to a size large enough where a schoolhouse could be built. While the activities of subsistence farming were largely solitary in nature, around harvest time in the fall, neighbors would help each other out with bringing in crops, and it was common for them to do activities like gathering chestnuts to store up for winter as a group. Typical meals included pork in many different sorts of forms, as most families had some sort of smokehouse where they would prepare ham, bacon, or other forms of salted, smoked, roasted pork. Because children were needed to help around the farm during the growing months, usually class was only held during the coldest months of the year when no farming could be done. In the summer, this was supplemented by vegetables from the garden, and in the winter, corn and things made out of cornmeal rounded out. Children would also attend school together, where common lessons included subjects like spelling, arithmetic, reading, and writing. Around the turn of the century, the population of Cades Cove peaked at around seven or 800 people, but things were about to change drastically. Horace Keppert was a slender man with a thin face. By the time he'd reached 40 years old, he'd had a distinguished career as a librarian. He had worked in Italy at the Yale University Library and had finally settled down in St. Louis with his wife and six children to be a librarian at the St. Louis Mercantile Library. By the time he'd reached 40 years old, it seemed like his career was on its ultimate path and that he had finally settled down for good. But like many in the history of America, Keppert grew restless. 
he started spending more time out in the woods, camping, hunting, fishing. He came to the conclusion that city life simply was not for him. After four years of being more and more burned out and withdrawn from work, he finally was asked to resign by the board of directors of the St. Louis Library, and he agreed. At that time, his wife and six children packed up and moved to Ithaca, New York, leaving him behind. After spending a summer with his family in Ohio, he set off to have a wilderness experience in the Great Smoky Mountains. After many sleepless nights and feeling hollow and unfulfilled, he decided that he was going to seek out a place back of the beyond where he could find a unique landscape filled with colorful characters. Over the ensuing decade, he would move to the Smokies to live in backwoods cabins, interacting with moonshiners, homesteaders, and trappers, then would try to reconcile with his wife, would live with friends in various other parts of the country before finally settling down in the Smokies for good. The book he wrote that chronicled some of his experiences in the Smokies, Our Southern Highlanders, came out in 1913, and it drew national interest to the unique people and places found only in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and North Carolina. An excerpt from Chapter 3 describes the hazy conditions that gave the Great Smokies their name. Quote, Characteristic is the dreamy blue haze, like that of Indian summer intensified that ever hovers over the mountains, unless they be swathed in cloud, or, for a few minutes, after a sharp rainstorm has cleared the atmosphere. Both the Blue Ridge and the Smoky Mountains owe their names to this tenuous mist. It softens all outlines and lends a mirage-like effect of great distance to objects that are but a few miles off, while those farther removed grow more and more intangible until finally the skyline blends with the sky itself. While he was happy to gain critical acclaim as a writer, Horace Kephart was not satisfied with merely profiting off the land that he loved, but became a staunch advocate for its protection. He believed fervently that this unique place needed to be preserved, but words and text were not enough. Pictures were much more powerful, and in order to convey to the American public just how special the Great Smoky Mountains were, he would need some sort of friend and partner who would be able to document their beauty in a way that the average American could appreciate the spectacular landscape. Enter George Masa. George Masa was born Masahara Izuka in Osaka, Japan. While he initially immigrated to the United States to seek a career in the mining industry, while he initially immigrated to the United States in order to seek a career in the mining industry, he struck out and headed east in the year 1915. With hardly a penny to his name and barely able to speak English, he settled in Asheville, North Carolina and picked up a job as a bellhop at the Grove Park Inn. Over time, he began practicing photography and started taking pictures for the hotel. As his reputation increased and he accumulated wealthy clients, he was able to eventually open up his own studio and pursue his passion of landscape photography of the Great Smoky Mountains. It was during this time that he became close friends with Horace Kephart, and the two could frequently be seen hiking the trails of the Great Smokies, documenting the green landscapes, hazy sunsets, and spectacular waterfalls in order to share scenes with the rest of the nation. Between the writing of Kephart and the photographs of George Massa, who came to be known as the Ansel Adams of the Great Smoky Mountains, they were able to foster a public campaign for preservation of the Great Smoky Mountains as a national park. Once they were finally able to bend the ear of some local businessmen, the task of organizing a national park began in earnest around 1923. At the time, it seemed like nearly an impossible task. When the United States had formed the national parks out west, most of these parks had been carved out of huge swaths of public land that the government could just set aside of its own free will. But the Great Smoky Mountains had already been settled, and large portions of it were private land that would need to be purchased. At the time, the United States government's position was that they would not offer any federal money for purchasing land for a national park, but they would be happy to establish and manage one 
if the National Park supporters were able to come up with the money to purchase the land themselves. Businessmen from Knoxville and Asheville in Tennessee and North Carolina, respectively, set up societies for the preservation of the Great Smoky Mountains. Their interests were not fully altruistic, as they did hope for a regional draw for tourism. Additionally, organizations like AAA that were supportive of automobile touring were interested in establishing scenic drives that motorists would be able to take in their newfangled automobiles. It was estimated at the outset that $10 million would be required in order to purchase all of the private inholdings within the proposed national park boundaries. They were able to gather the support of many locals in Knoxville, Asheville, and other surrounding cities, and between local businesses, residents, and even school children holding drives where they would collect pennies, they were able to raise millions of dollars towards the creation of the park. However, they still found themselves about $5 million short. It was at this moment that the wealthiest family in the history of the United States intervened. After viewing some of the photographs of George Massa, the Rockefeller family was so impressed with the natural value of the Great Smoky Mountains to the American people that they pledged to donate matching funds in order to bring the total money raised for the creation of the park to $10 million. It was at this point that the park was fully funded, but the difficult work of sorting out the private inholdings within the park had just begun. As you can imagine, the homesteaders living in places like Cades Cove, some of the unique characters that had originally drawn Horace Kephart to the area, were not all enthralled with the prospect of selling the farms that they'd spent their entire lives on and moving out just so that the federal government could create a park. Not all were upset, of course. Some people were more than happy to cash out and go start a new life elsewhere. But it took many years of the federal government negotiating with families, taking some like John Oliver's descendant to court in order to evict them from their lands, and finally agreeing with some of the families that they would be able to stay on in the park to live a subsistence style of life until they had passed away, at which point their lands would be sold off at the time of their death to the National Park Service. It was additionally onerous negotiating with some of the lumber companies that had private land within the park as they required compensation not just for their land and the trees but also for some of the equipment that they would be losing or need to leave behind. One final piece remained before the National Park Service could go about the serious business of incorporating the park, however. The federal government had to procure the state lands from Tennessee and North Carolina in order to complete the required acreage to make the park viable. Additionally, Tennessee and North Carolina had paid for and started building U.S. Highway 411 over the Great Smoky Mountains to join the two states. This road, now known as Newfound Gap Road, would be essential to the operation of the park. North Carolina, I've got to say, folded like a house of cards and deeded their highway over to the federal government with the understanding that the federal government would take care of all the maintenance costs for that portion, as well as all of North Carolina's state lands. Tennessee, on the other hand, saw this as an opportunity to drive a harder bargain. Tennessee wanted to retain leverage over their lands and highway in order to make sure that the terms of the deal would be favorable to them. They deeded the land and the highway to the federal government with restrictions that would be in effect in perpetuity. They stipulated that not only would the federal government be responsible for the maintenance of their part of the Newfound Gap Road, but also that the federal government wouldn't impose any sort of tax or toll on the Newfound Gap Road so that commerce between North Carolina and Tennessee would not be affected. Because the Newfound Gap Road is essential to accessing most areas of the park, this had the effect of meaning that the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is one of the few fee-free parks in the entire national park system. While some of the most popular parks in the national park system now charge 20, 30, or more dollars for a week's visit, visiting the Great Smoky Mountains is completely 100% 
free of charge, all thanks to Tennessee and its skepticism of the federal government. Changing this arrangement in the future would require an act of legislature by the state of Tennessee, so I don't see it happening anytime soon. And while I will agree this is so great in principle for anyone wishing to visit the Great Smoky Mountains, it unfortunately means that since federal tax dollars are not quite enough to cover the operating expenditures of the park, the operating costs of Great Smoky Mountains National Park have to be covered by revenues from other parks within the National Park Service. This is all to say, if you love the Great Smoky Mountains and love your visit there, be sure to support the National Park Service either by buying an annual pass or by making a donation to Friends of the Smokies, which is a nonprofit organization that donates money to help with education, facilities, and other operational expenditures of the park. You can find their website at friendsofthesmokies.org. If you live in Tennessee or North Carolina, you can even buy a cute little license plate with an adorable little bear on it, and a portion of those proceeds will go to the park that you so love. Finally, after years of negotiating with private owners of land within the proposed national park and an injection of another $1 million of cash related to the Civilian Conservation Corps, in 1934, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the National Park Service formally dedicated Great Smoky Mountains National Park. While many homesteaders initially chose to live on after the creation of the park, Many found the Park Service's rules to be too restrictive. Said one homesteader, They tell me I can't even break a twig, or pull a flower, or even fish with bait. This is to say, most of the homesteaders were not able to accomplish the same sort of subsistence living that they had before the establishment of the park under the Park Service rules. There was a famous set of holdouts, however, the Walker sisters. The Walker sisters were descended from John Walker, a Union Army soldier who had retreated to the Great Smoky Mountains after being released from a Confederate prisoner of war camp. In 1866, he settled down in Little Greenbrier Cove near Metcalf Bottoms. He and his wife had 11 children, six of whom were unmarried women who continued living in the family cabin in Little Greenbrier Cove after John Walker passed away in 1921. One of the sisters passed away, but the other five sisters remained and refused to sell their 122-acre homestead until 1940, when they finally relinquished and sold it to the National Park Service for just under $5,000, under the stipulation that they would be able to live out their lives with an indefinite lease of the property until they passed away. Rather than withering under the National Park Service restrictions, however, the Walker sisters flourished and became somewhat of a curiosity. They became well-known for their handmade goods and homemade pies and were featured in national publications. The National Park Service and the Walker sisters installed a visitor's welcome sign encouraging visitors to take a trip up the Little Greenbrier Trail to visit their cabin. This arrangement lasted until 1951, when after three sisters died, only Margaret and Louisa were left. Margaret and Louisa felt that they were too tired to continue on the family business of selling homemade goods and asked the National Park Service to have visitors respect their privacy. The sign was taken down, but the sisters continued to live on for many more years. Eventually, Margaret would pass away in 1962 at the age of 92, and Louisa would pass away in the house on July 13, 1964, the last resident of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Their cabin can still be visited by parking at the Metcalf Bottoms and hiking the Little Briar Gap Trail a mile to a mile and a half, where you can see where the sisters tended to their gardens and welcome visitors for decades. Now all that remains are the structures left behind by those who spent time in Great Smoky Mountains National Park before us. The best places to check out historical structures are 
Cades Cove and the Roaring Fork Motor Nature Trail on the west side and the Cataloochee Valley on the east side. My personal favorite historic structure in the entire park is the Cable Mill in Cades Cove. It makes a great subject. It makes a great subject for landscape photography, especially in the fall when the leaves are changing. Along with the historical structures we've discussed, the variety of animals and plants in the park is truly astonishing. Visiting the Great Smoky Mountains is almost like going to the rainforest. We've talked about the biodiversity of the forests a little bit already, but I just want to take a moment to highlight some of the really, really cool animals that you can see on a visit to the Great Smoky Mountains. The Great Smoky Mountains have been called the salamander capital of the world. While that may not be the sexiest catchphrase of all time to anyone other than a herpetologist, the number and variety of salamanders in the park is truly astounding. In fact, according to the National Park Service, on any given day, there are probably more salamanders in the park than any other vertebrate animal, which is absolutely crazy to me that a place would have that many salamanders. There are five different families of salamanders that live in the park, and one of the most special classes of salamanders that resides in the park is their very diverse population of lungless salamanders. So lungless salamanders are really fascinating because they don't respirate through lungs the way that a lot of other vertebrates do. They actually do the gas exchange in their blood through tiny blood vessels called capillaries that run underneath their skin. So that membrane of their skin is able to do gas exchange just the way the membranes within the lungs of other vertebrates like humans are able to do gas exchange. The Great Smoky Mountains also has a very, very cool type of salamander that you may have seen pictures of in your biology books at some point called a hellbender. So hellbenders are really cool just because they are a very metal salamander. They are the largest salamander in the Great Smoky Mountains and they can get up to 30 inches long and they look pretty gnarly if you look at pictures of them. The people of the Smoky Mountains have given super endearing cute names to all the different animals that live there so of course they call hellbenders snot otters which is very evocative and if you look at the pictures is actually probably a pretty gross but pretty accurate description of what these things look like. If you want to check out some of the salamanders in the park you can really just look at any of the number of streams or creeks. There's a lot of trails and even roads that kind of parallel some of the streams and creeks in the park and just walk along near the water on the trail being careful not to disturb any of the habitat of the animals and look in the water for the salamanders you'll see them sometimes on the rocks or logs or you'll see them maybe clinging to the side of a rock or log they might be under the water or above the water um, definitely be sure not to touch them uh, don't handle them or harass them in any way one of the other things that the National Park Service likes to try to emphasize, and I've seen this as a trend in social media a lot recently, you know, you'll see people go to these streams and you'll see these cairns and these rock stacks and people will say, I'm just celebrating how much I love nature. You know, I'm celebrating just this zen relaxed feeling I have in nature. I'm constructing these little towers out of rocks because I think they're beautiful and they represent to me my own harmony with nature. And I think that's great that people feel that way, but especially in a place like Great Smoky Mountains National Park, where the salamanders that live in the water, live in and around those rocks, depend on that as habitat, that rock stacking behavior is actually quite destructive to the salamander habitat. It's not good for the salamander populations, it's not good for their breeding, uh, it's definitely against leave no trace policies it's against that kind of leave no trace ethos right because you're you're leaving these towers of rocks it seems reversible right because you can just knock the thing over and it's been undone but unfortunately the damage isn't necessarily undone because as soon as you started moving those rocks around you may have damaged some of that salamander habitat and you might say well 
you know, I'm just stacking some rocks. What's the big deal here? And maybe if just one person did it, it wouldn't be a big deal. But when you have a park that sees 60,000 visitors a day, if everybody starts stacking rocks because they see it on Instagram, you know, that's going to have a pretty big effect on the habitat of these animals. So please don't stack the rocks. Definitely take advantage of some of the nice trails they have, though, that go by the streams and keep your eyes peeled for salamanders. If you're looking for any sort of aquatic life, be that fish, salamanders, whatever, under the water, one investment that I highly recommend is picking up a pair of polarized sunglasses. Polarized sunglasses are going to cut the glare on the water, make it a lot easier to see what's underneath the water. You might think, oh, sunglasses, they're going to make everything darker. It's going to be harder to see what's under the water. But if you pick up a pair, don't necessarily go for the darkest ones. Go for ones that are labeled as being polarized. A lot of times you'll find really good polarized sunglasses by fishing equipment because people who are fishing take advantage of them regularly. The next really cool animal that is very unique to the Smoky Mountains and especially one tiny pocket of the park is the synchronous firefly, Photinus carolinus. So there are lots of different species of fireflies out there in North America, even within the Smoky Mountains itself. But there's only one species of synchronous firefly in America and it's this one. And it's principally found at the Elkmont Campground in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So how specific does that get? Only found really within this one park and mainly found at this one campground. There are some other little pockets of populations that you can sometimes find at elevation in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And then every once in a while it'll be spotted somewhere else in the Appalachian Mountain Range, uh, but not in, in reliable large numbers at all. So what am I talking about here? Synchronous fireflies. So you've all seen fireflies probably at some point. They're these really neat little insects that use this biological technique called bioluminescence. They have this enzyme luciferase that catalyzes this chemical reaction in their abdomen that creates this glowing light as part of a mating display. And taken individually, fireflies are really, really beautiful. But the cool thing that happens, especially with this species of firefly, is that they will all glow together or they'll glow in waves. So it's like synchronized. It's almost like a laser light display. And you can go find videos of this on YouTube. I'll try to throw one up on the website. But it is really, really cool to see. And it's super unique. Basically nowhere else in America you can see it reliably. Uh, timing it can be a little bit tricky. You know, you're probably looking at around like the last half of May is going to be the most reliable time to go see the synchronous firefly displays, but it can be kind of tricky to time exactly when you're going to see it. They're usually going to be more spectacular on warmer nights, and you're going to want to remember if you go to just have good etiquette in terms of don't be displaying a lot of artificial light, you know, keep things dark so that people can enjoy the fireflies. And please just sit back and enjoy the show. Don't try to capture them in a bottle or something. Remember, this is a very localized, very specific firefly. And we don't want to disturb this population of fireflies and ruin this for everybody by going out and trying to capture a bunch of these for some sort of insect collection or something like that. The third really cool animal that you can check out in Great Smoky Mountains National Park is actually very common in the national parks in the western part of the United States, and that is the elk. Elk, you say? Elk in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That seems very gimmicky. And you'd maybe partially be right, because you don't really find elk very many other places east of the Mississippi River nowadays. However, the natural range of the elk actually stretches into the Carolinas. It stretches very far east. They were just hunted extensively by people moving into the area from the eastern seaboard because they're large animals, very high meat yield, really easy target, great hunting. So elk were pretty much wiped out from the eastern part of the United States, 
and pushed back into the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains areas. However, in 2001, the National Park Service decided, hey, this area had elk naturally. If we want to give visitors kind of a natural look at what the Great Smoky Mountains were like many, many years ago when they were in maybe a more natural state, we're going to try reintroducing elk and see how it goes. So in 2001 and 2002, on the east side of the park, they introduced 25 elk in 2001, another 25 elk in 2002, and the breeding program was actually quite successful. So these days, there are around 200 elk on that, primarily that east side of the park, over on that Carolina side of the park. You can see them in the Cataloochee Valley and by the Oconalefti Visitor Center. And it's really, really spectacular to go see them, just like seeing them out west. So if you can't make it out west, you know, definitely admire the elk that you can find there on the Carolina side of the park. In the fall, it's just like going out west. You can hear the elk bugling and see these bulls with their big racks of antlers, you know, standing in the beautiful streams that you've got there in the Smoky Mountains. So check them out if you are able to get to that part of the park. And the final really cool animal that we're going to talk about that lives in Great Smoky Mountains National Park is the mascot of the park, the iconic Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Black Bear. Black bears are found throughout the United States, but the Great Smoky Mountains is one of the largest areas of prime black bear habitat preserved in the entire lower 48. There's probably somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 bears in the park. They think that there's at least two bears per square mile at any given time. So you have very, very good chances of seeing the bears if you're there outside of maybe the coldest three or four months of the year. So take the coldest three or four months of the year if you're visiting outside that time, you've got a good chance of seeing bears. Definitely be bear aware, be safe when you're in the Great Smoky Mountains. If you want to learn more about bear safety, find our podcast on Apple or Spotify. Go back and listen to our episode on the Night of the Grizzlies in Glacier National Park. We go through a lot of bear safety tips in that two-part episode. Talk a lot about bear biology. It's a little bit more pertinent to grizzly bears, but some of it applies to both black and grizzly bears. We kind of talk about both. One thing to remember with black bears, especially in a forested area like the Great Smoky Mountains, is that black bears do like to climb trees. They really like the, there's a lot of hardwood trees that produce nuts where the bears will like to go up in the tree to kind of go after the nuts and eat up in the tree. Don't just be looking for bears on the ground if you're driving around or hiking. Definitely take a moment to look up in the trees also every now and again because you might be surprised at how slender of a branch a black bear can actually get on out there. As with most animals, getting out there early in the morning or hiking later in the evening, you're going to have a better chance of seeing a bear than smack dab in the middle of the day usually. And hey, would you look at that? That is our episode. We've been talking about the Great Smoky Mountains. You know, we got to delve into the geology. We got to delve into some of the ecology. We went over the history of the place, talked about the history of the indigenous peoples, history of some of the white settlers that moved in, talked about the story of the creation of the park, and we got to talk about some of the really special animals that you might have the chance to see if you visit Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I want to thank you so much for taking this time to be with us and to listen to this podcast, learn a little bit more about the Great Smoky Mountains. If you liked what you heard, why don't you find us on your podcast app of choice, follow us, leave us a review, Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle on both of those platforms is just NerdRomer. That way you won't miss out on news about new episodes and that kind of thing. And check out our website at nerdromer.com. It's always growing. You know, we're adding pages. We've got pages for each episode with links, summaries of the shows. Also have collections of some of our favorite episodes from this podcast and other podcasts. Lots of good stuff to check out there. And if you want to learn more about the Great Smoky Mountains, 
you can stay tuned on our podcast channel. We're going to have a short episode coming out with some of my favorite spots within the park, some of my favorite hikes and scenic overlooks, that kind of thing. Other great sources for learning more about the park. National Park Service website, nps.gov, is absolutely fantastic. You can also check out Friends of the Smoky Mountains, like we were referencing earlier in the show, if you're interested in donating to maybe support some of the work on trails and other facilities there. If you're looking to support the park by buying some sweet merch, the Great Smoky Mountains Association is another nonprofit organization. They run all of the gift shops in the park, so they run the official park store. They've got all kinds of great materials. In addition to just merchandise, you know, you want to get a t-shirt with a bear on it or something like that. You can also get books to help you plan your trip there, down to really granular descriptions of hikes, drives, that kind of thing. So definitely check out smokiesinformation.org if you're thinking about taking a trip to the park. And with that, I'm going to drop you off right here and hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Remember, keep roaming, nerds. <laughs>